Ave Maria Radio presents Christ is the Answer with Father John Ricardo. He's a priest of the Archdiocese of Detroit and is currently the executive director of a nonprofit organization called Acts 29, which exists to work with pastors and their teams to transform their parish culture and reclaim the church's missionary identity. He was ordained in 1996. This is the beginning of a six-part mission series. Father John talks about sin, the sin of our time, and he also talks about the movie, The Passion of the Christ. It's a movie he and the Cardinal Mita Institute staff saw for the first time back in 2004. Father John Ricardo begins by reading a passage from the prophet Isaiah. Yet it was our infirmities that he bore, our sufferings that he endured. While we thought of him as stricken, as one smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our offenses, crushed for our sins. Upon him was the chastisement that makes us whole, and by his stripes we were healed. We had all gone astray like sheep, each following his own way. But the Lord laid upon him the guilt of us all. Father in heaven, we pray as we start this grace-filled season of Lent this day. We pray in great thanksgiving for all that you have done for us in Jesus. For the gift of our redemption. For the price that he willingly paid for our sins. Father, we pray to know your love more fully in these 40 days. And we pray that you would help us to know that love by convicting us and convincing us of sin. Lord, teach us the truth about sin, and especially our own. Help us to see where it clings to us. Help us to understand that it was for our sin that Christ suffered. Give to us not only a deeper understanding, but a hatred for it, a desire to be free from it and to follow you sincerely. We ask your grace and your blessings to be with us this night, but we ask all these things through Christ our Lord. Amen. How many people saw the movie today? A number of you. The rest of you are going with us tomorrow. A priest in Rome, he's a religious priest, when he saw the movie about uh, three months ago at a screening, his comment was, if this is the remedy, then what's the wound? If this is the cure, and he was thinking in a particular way as he watched Christ's scourging, which in the movie is particularly horrific. If this is the remedy, then what's the wound? What's the disease? And the disease is sin. Yours and mine. If I ask you right now to try to come up with what you think to be the most serious sin of our age, what would you guess? Many of us would probably say abortion, but it's not. As horrific as it is. Others of us might say that it's the abuse of children, the abuse of any kind, which is also horrific. And a grave injustice, but it's not the most serious sin nor is the most serious sin the, our failure to share our resources with those who are less fortunate than us or any other act of injustice that we might try to think of. The most serious sin of our age is the loss of a sense of sin. At least that's what Pope Pius XII said back in 1950, and Pope John Paul II repeated it in 1984. The most serious sin of our age is a loss of the sense of sin. Most of us have no idea what it really is. We might recognize it in others, but we're a little slow perhaps to recognize it in ourselves. As we went as a staff today to see the movie just to begin the season of Lent and to kind of make today something of a small retreat. And I think all of us felt this. It was said, but I think all of us could probably say it as well. And I think all of us will say it when you see the movie. Why did he have to go through so much? Why did it have to be so horrific? So violent, so brutal? Why? 
And I think in all of us asking the question, it only goes to show how little we really grasp about the truth of sin. There's a lot of talk, not only about the movie, but things like the Da Vinci Code as well, all these wonderful opportunities that we have as Christians and Catholics to speak the truth because people are curious. In whatever way they get curious, that's fine. It's our obligation to help them to understand truth. They're ripe for the picking, so to speak, right now. They're asking questions. They're curious. Their attention is piqued. We have to be able to respond to that. But I'm always troubled as I watched a, a number of interviews with Mel Gibson or Jim Caviezel or responses about the Da Vinci Code. And the question is always, you know, why these hours? Why did you make a movie about the last 12 hours of his life? Or why so violent? There seems to be a genuinely pained expression on the face of the people who are asking the questions as if they have no clue that these are the most significant moments of Jesus's life and that the reason that you focus on these hours, particularly in the season of Lent, is because they show us the depth to which he went to redeem us, that is to set free a slave, which is what we all were to sin and to death. And so tonight in a particular way, that's what I want to try to focus our attention on, a couple of things. Understanding that contrary to the interviewers or the so-called scholars who are out there trying to talk about why Jesus came and what he was put to death for, Jesus' own words, and certainly the words of his disciples, and particularly of Paul, make it very clear that he died for sin, that he suffered for sin, that he gave himself up for sin, that he was sacrificed or that he sacrificed himself for sin. He became sin. If you saw the movie today, you have an image of what it looks like to become sin. And when you see it, it will probably shock you what sin, my sin, and yours looks like. So the Pope talks often about the theme of sin, saying that in order for genuine conversion to happen, you and I, in order for us to really repent, to really begin to follow Jesus, to really change our way of living, what has to happen is we have got to get convinced of sin. If I'm not convinced of sin, I really have no appreciation for why he's hanging on the cross. And to the extent that I'm convinced of my own sin, then I'm grateful, unceasingly grateful. I'm always shocked, uh, as a priest, particularly this time of year in the season of Lent, when people come to confession and people will come and they'll say something to the effect, this is not uncommon. Father, it's been a year since my last confession. I really don't have anything to confess. I just know I should come. You have got to be joking. How dull can our consciences be? I can't go six hours without feeling like I need to go to a confessional. I'm there every two weeks, sometimes more often. My confessor looks at me and says, now what? (laughs) That's what he said to me last time. Now what? Good grief. What kind of greeting is that? (laughs) Tells you he knows me. Now what? A year since my last confession, I really have no idea what to confess. Hopefully, as we see Christ suffer for our sins, that might help us. I have a whole slew of texts from the New Testament and from the Old from the Gospels as well as from the letters that I was going to go through tonight, but I don't think I'm going to, to be honest, just because of time. But what I'll do is I'll make a copy of them and put them out for you for next week. The purpose of the text is soul, and it's simply to show you from Jesus' own words why he came. I'm, I'm amazed at the confusion about people as to why God became man. He didn't become man to walk on water. He didn't become man to multiply the loaves. He didn't become man to cure the blind. He became man to die so as to rise, and to die for our sin, so as to rise, so that to free us from our sin. That's why he came. From the very first moment that the angel Gabriel appears to Joseph, after he's already appeared to Mary, and tells Joseph what to name the child. He says, you will name him Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. Jesus, or Yeshua, means God saves. It's not only who he is, it's what he does. He saves. Not from leprosy, blindness, deafness, at least not primarily. He saves from death and from sin. That's why he came. And so a whole series of these texts, which could go on and on, from 
not only the four Gospels, not only Jesus at different moments when he's confronting the Pharisees and tells them, I didn't come to seek the righteous, huh? Healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. By the way, it should say there, you're all sick. Don't be fooled. Some of us are just sicker than others. But we're all sick. To John the Baptist pointing Jesus out at the day when John's out preaching and says, that's him. That's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's how John identifies him. Or at the institution of the Last Supper, when Jesus, whether he's holding up the bread or he's holding up the cup, says this will be shed for you. Why? So that sins may be forgiven. That's why it's being shed. As Hebrews says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins, since Christ's blood was shed copiously for us, for me. And you. Having said that then, and, and hopefully somewhat convinced that you and I know that that's why Jesus came, that's why he bled, that's why he was scourged, that's why he was mocked, that's why he was humiliated, that's why he was crowned with thorns, that's why he carried his cross, that's why he was nailed to his cross. Presuming that you and I know that, then we can just kind of dive into sin, which I don't know that we can presume we do know. When's the last time you were in confession? Don't answer. I can tell you with absolute certainty, as you walk out of the movie, you will want to run to a confessional. Even if you were there yesterday. Because clarity all of a sudden comes over us as we see what he really did. And one of the gifts of this film for us is going to help us to understand that sin is not just some breaking of a law or a code, much less any set of arbitrary rules or regulations. Sin is an offense against a person. It's a refusal to love him who has done so much for us. And it's a refusal to love each other who are so loved by him. It's a refusal to live according to the way that he has taught us the refusal to live according to the dictates of our conscience, which we have. It's not legal, it's personal. And hopefully the film will really drive that home for us. Hopefully as we watch what he endures for us, we'll get caught in his glance, if you will. And he can speak to us and remind us, I am doing this for you. I am willingly undergoing this for you. Not because you broke the speed limit, but because you've refused my love and to love each other. And this is how serious it is when that happens. The Catechism has a tremendously, and it's a brief section on sin, begins in paragraphs 1846, it ends at uh, 1876. And it makes a number of points that are worth reminding ourselves of. Sin is an offense against reason, against truth, against right conscience. It's failure to live, or it's failure in genuine love for God and neighbor caused by a perverse attachment to certain goods. It wounds the nature of man and injures human solidarity. It's an utterance, a deed, or a desire contrary to the eternal law, which again is not arbitrary. It's simply our Father who's in love with us, lovingly telling us how to find life. As opposed to your Father on earth who says to you, I want you home at 12. And you say, why? And he says, because I'm your Father, and I said so. Or I'm your mother, and I said so. But he is never like that. He's not arbitrary. It's all love. Or again, sin is an offense against God. Sin sets itself against God's love for us, turns our hearts away from it. And then paragraph 1851 is particularly apropos given what's come out today in the theaters. It is precisely in the passion, the catechism says, when the mercy of Christ is about to vanquish it, 
that sin most clearly manifests its violence and its many forms, unbelief, murderous hatred, shunning and mockery by the leaders and the people, Pilate's cowardice, the cruelty of the soldiers, Judas's betrayal, which was so bitter to Jesus, Peter's denial and the disciples' flight. However, at the very hour of darkness, the hour of the prince of this world, the sacrifice of Christ secretly becomes the source from which the forgiveness of our sins will pour forth inexhaustibly. And then right after that, in paragraph 1853, the Catechism just reminds us that sin happens or is rooted in the human heart. It's rooted in an attitude which says, I will not obey, I will not serve, I will not love, I will not forgive, I will not listen to him who loves me. And it's from the heart that every sin comes out. And as these beginning days of Lent happen or begin to unfold, trust me, one of the things the Holy Spirit wants to do is convince us of our sin and to pull back the veil, not for some of us, I don't think, but for all of us, beginning with me, as to how we have let and where we have let sin creep into our hearts and let it dwell there. Then the Catechism goes on to remind us that there are two different kinds of sin, huh? which Scripture tells us from 1 John chapter 5, 16 and 17. There's sin which leads to death. We call that mortal sin. And there's sin which doesn't lead to death, but which is still sin. It's still wrongdoing. It's still an offense against love. That's venial sin. Sin which leads to death, which is mortal sin, cuts us off from the life of grace. And the only way for us to repair that is to acknowledge it by going to confession. Venial sin gets forgiven in lots of ways. What's required for all of this is hardly putting enough money in the slot machine and pulling the lever. What's required is a contrite heart. Since sin happens in the heart, repentance has to happen in the heart. So, for venial sin, which doesn't cut me off for the life of grace, a genuinely contrite heart and me on my knees at the foot of my bed before I go to sleep, the Lord forgives my sin and your sin. Come into communion with venial sin. In a contrite heart, a desire to be free from it, an understanding of what it is that we've done, that forgives our sin. The act of what we call the confiter at the beginning of Mass, which you don't have on Ash Wednesday because the whole entrance rite is a penitential rite as well as the distribution of ashes. But every day as well as every Sunday when we gather at Mass and we pray, um, I confess to Almighty God and to you, my brothers and sisters. If that's not mechanical, which it can easily be, huh? But if it's not mechanical, if it's done with a contrite heart, a crushed heart, a heart which, as I pray that, focuses on him on the cross and understands, I did that. I put him there. Well, then that confidior, that act of contrition at the beginning of the celebration of Mass, that absolves or forgives my sins. So the forgiveness of venial sins comes in a variety of different ways. But the the forgiveness of mortal sin barring extraordinary circumstances, comes in one way. And that's confession. And Lent is an extraordinary time for confession. We all heard Paul in the second reading tonight. Now is the day of salvation, Paul says. Now. That means this, this now, this day. Today is an acceptable time to hear his voice, to respond to it, to get right with him, to break from sin, and to let him love us, which is all he wants to do. And all our sin does, in effect, is keep him away. Now is an acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. If we will but hear his voice and not harden our hearts.
Confession is instituted scripturally in the Gospel of John. It's the first thing Jesus does after he rises from the dead, huh? where he breathes on the apostles in John chapter 20. And then gives to them the authority to forgive sins. Talk about a realistic Savior. This is the very day he rose from the dead and crushed sin. And the gift he gives to the apostles is, you know what? We're going to have to keep doing this. (laughs) This gift which is given today, people are going to turn from. And when they do, and when they do so seriously, that's why this gift is here. So I give to you my authority to forgive so that they can be right again with me. So the peace that I have won for them can really dwell in them. Confession is face-to-face confession. There has been, I know, a movement in recent years to do what's called general absolution, which is fine if you're on a plane and you're flying into the World Trade Center. That would be an appropriate time for general absolution. Barring that, there really isn't. Barring a disaster of that magnitude, which is what that's for, huh? Because obviously you don't have the chance to get down the aisle and get to the priest. Barring that, there are no circumstances in this country, in ordinary daily life, for general absolution. We are obliged to come face-to-face before someone who can give us a personal encounter with Jesus, which is what the sacraments are. They all are personal encounters with the Lord. We must remember that. They're not mechanical. They're not legal. They're personal encounters with him, and they give us grace. And goodness knows we need grace. Two things happen in confession. I not only get forgiven, which I need, but I get that grace, without which I can't possibly be the man I want to be, nor can you, nor the woman you want to be. I have to have his strength. It's not enough to just have a good, strong will. I need more, and I need him. That's what confession helps us with. I want to challenge us tonight. I want to invite, as much as anything, those of us who've been away from this wondrous sacrament to come back. I didn't go for ten years. tried to convince myself for years that it was enough just to stand at the foot of my bed or kneel at the foot of my bed and say, I'm sorry, Lord. Which would be great. (laughs) But it's not what he said. And it deprived me, I really came to understand, of an encounter with him. It's one thing to try to convince myself that I'm forgiven. It's a wholly other thing to hear after what I've done, a bishop or a priest say to me, and I absolve you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Your sins are forgiven. Go in peace. That is an extraordinary grace. Is it humbling? You better believe it. Remember, God opposes the proud and loves the humble. Christ became humble for us. So if you haven't been, go. Don't worry about what the priest will say. Don't worry if you don't know what to do. Good grief, after 10 years, I hardly had any idea what to do. (laughs) What you do is simply this. You walk in, you say, bless me, Father, it's been... 15 years since I've been to confession. Or three weeks, or six months, or however long. It's been however long since my last confession. And then I lay out for him my sin. Huh? We are obliged when we go to confession to acknowledge in number and in kind, that is what I've done and how often I've done, that which is mortal. That's the only thing I'm obliged to confess. It's laudable, noteworthy, to confess venial sin. Hopefully, at a certain point, that's all we're coming to confession for, is venial sin. 
But what we're obliged to confess is mortal sin, that which cuts us off from grace, which means it keeps us from communion. Huh? If we know we're in mortal sin, we can't come forward for communion. So that alone should be incentive for us to always run to confession when we know that we're not in grace with God, to run. And after the movie, hopefully one of the lasting imprints in our minds will be, what could possibly keep me from running to him? There is no question how much he loves me. I've just seen it. In gruesome detail, I've just seen it. How can I not have remarkable confidence in him? So then I'm obliged, as best I can, to throw out all my sin, which is mortal. A number of different images that I have for confession, one of them is like a shower. So if I get into the shower and I keep my arm and my leg out, looks kind of stupid, huh? <laughs> okay. Well, the arm and the leg don't get clean, do they? i got to put them underneath the nozzle to get them clean. Well, confession is like the nozzle. And I have to make sure I can throw everything underneath it so as to get it washed. And then I just always picture that in front of me is this tremendous vat of Christ's blood. And everything just drowns in it. Just melts away, dissolves, is gone. I leave it there with my confessor. Walk out, let him take care of it. Just like I have to take care of everybody else's as a confessor. And the way we take care of it is we walk over there in front of that tabernacle and you just pretend like you're a dump truck and you just unload it and leave it with him, who's the only one who can handle it. Or I would walk around crushed all day. So we're obliged then to acknowledge that which we have committed, which we know is mortal and which has cut us off from the life of grace. Then after that, the priest will give us some sort of encouragement, a penance. And then we say an act of contrition. This, I'm always amazed how much this panics people. So as a confessor now, I don't say to people, please say the act of contrition. I'll say, do you know one? Because my presumption is they don't. Because I certainly didn't know it. I had no idea what an act of contrition was. And... I, as much as anything, for those of us, and I won't ask you to raise your hands, but I know there's a lot of us who either haven't been or don't know how to go, and it petrifies us. And there is nothing to be petrified about an encounter with a God who suffers for us. Nothing. Ever. And unfortunately, we get hung up on the form and think, oh, I don't know the form, and then the form keeps us away. And that's the devil's way of just keeping us away from grace. Which he knows we get here. And if we don't get it, he can continue to point his finger at us and accuse us of what we've done and remind us of what we've done and drag it up in front of our face. Once I get out of confession and he points and he'll continue to point, the guilt's gone, the shame stays, but as he points, I look at him and I say, you're dang right I did that, and I acknowledge it and I'm forgiven, you can go to hell. Go back where you belong. And that's a great thing to be able to say to the devil. <laughs> a great thing. So an act of contrition, there are a number of ones which you can memorize. There are some that are in the backs of what we call an examination of conscience, a little booklet will have different things to prepare us for, how to go to confession and whatnot. You can make up the act of contrition. It just has to be a prayer that you say out loud, which expresses to the Lord your sorrow for your sins and your desire to do better. The greatest prayers are always the ones that we can make up from our heart, huh? Otherwise, you get, oh my God, I'm sorry for my sins with all my heart and truly, uh, I'm wrong, I'm telling you right, I'm against you above heaven, I'm going to some more. Amen. And ask it, well, that's great. Do you know an act of contrition? I don't know what that was. That was the speed bap. Just say, Lord, I'm really sorry. I'm really sorry. Forgive me. That's the easiest act of contrition. Or, oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That works just fine. That's how the Pharisee went home justified. Or the tax collector, excuse me. 
oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's the act of contrition. And then we hear some of the most amazing words we ever hear in life. God, the Father of mercies, through the death and resurrection of his Son, has reconciled the world to himself and sent the Holy Spirit among us for the forgiveness of sins. Through the ministry of the church, may God grant you pardon and peace. And I absolve you from all your sins. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And then we're like the woman caught in adultery who gets to go home. Someone once said, to the best of our ability, we should walk into confession not expecting to be absolved. It sounds strange, I know, because that's why we're going, is to get absolved. But to the best of our ability, so that we don't take this for granted, so that I can hear those words and be shocked that the Lord would love me so much that even though I was here, I mean, it's easy for me to believe that the Lord can forgive the prodigal, huh? He was gone. And he came back. It's an entirely different thing for me to believe that the father can continue to forgive the son. Who's, you know, it was, you did this Monday, you did it Tuesday, you ran away. Wednesday, you were gone. Thursday, you've been gone every day this week. You leave, you come back, I forgive you, and then you leave again. Which is something like my life anyway. But every time we hear those words, and then we go in peace. That's how we go. Now that may be totally elemental for some of us here. And if it is, I'm sorry for that. But as we begin this season of penance, this tremendous time of grace, I think it's important for us to have a sense as to, and to have the fears that any of us might have, even just to shatter one person's fears, and to get us back to confession, who might, might not have gone simply because I was embarrassed that I didn't know what to do. That's gone now, hopefully. If you have only been going to general absolution and you've got mortal sin, which is sin which is gravely wrong, which I knew and which I deliberately chose to do anyway, when those three things happen, it was gravely wrong, I knew it was wrong, and I freely did it. Then I'm out of grace. I can never answer for any of you whether or not you knew it or you freely did it. In fact, none of you can ever answer that for another person. You don't know that. What I can judge and what I have to judge as a confessor is whether or not what you did was gravely wrong or to help you if you're confused on that, just like my confessor may have to help me, although I'm not usually sitting there going, gosh, I I wonder if that was really wrong. So when we know that those three things, we've got to go. And if you've only been going to general absolution to get that absolved, you haven't been absolved. So come back. Come back to -to face-to-face confession. Go to a communal penance service, which is a great, it's actually the best way to celebrate confession because we all gather like a body tonight, huh? We all can acknowledge to each other, we acknowledge quite humbly and sincerely, we're all sinful. We all put the Lord on the cross. So we gather as a body, we pray together, and then we go individually to confession. When I was in seminary and we would gather, that was a tremendous witness to each other and to people who would come to visit, just that we would all stand up and go. Because you knew awfully well as I'm getting up and I'm passing by you, you know that I'm one of the things I'm confessing is getting angry at you. <laughs> That's why it's so, it's so worth going as a couple and as a family. Great thing to get back to. You want to really irk the devil, go to confession as a couple. That'll tick him off. Because you'll get his grace. So he can't drive that wedge. The Lord's grace. I've put um, on the sheet that I gave you, there's two different things in that. One is um, scriptural examinations of conscience. For all of us, not just for those of us who haven't been to confession in years or something, but for those of us who who regularly go but perhaps are are in a bit of a rut, there are lots of examinations of conscience. I've got a set of great little books. There's one in a book called The Manual of Prayers, which has an examination of conscience, although that's something more for seminarians because it was put together by the house where I lived in Rome. But it applies to all of us too. 
there's all sorts of little ones that perhaps some of us have. Those of us who don't have any examination of conscience, the greatest place to begin is with Scripture. And so all these passages of the New Testament, from the Gospels as well as from Paul's letters primarily, give us great reflections on the Word of God to convict us of sin. Whether it's gossip, slander, impurity, hatred, bitterness, resentment, idolatry, whatever it might be. What the Lord, as we read these passages, particularly at the start of the season of Lent, with the desire to want to emerge at Easter free, genuinely free from those things which cling to us, this is a great place to start, to, to really let the Holy Spirit, as we read the inspired Word of God, move in our hearts and to show us, you know what, this, this here, right here, this thing in your life, this needs to go. Let it go. So that's the, uh, the first series of passages. The second series of passages are just for reflection for us, for us all. And they are different passages from the Old and the New Testament on repentance. Something to, again, to stir up within us. We did this in the series on prayer, huh? The whole truth that this is all God's initiative. But God wants us to repent. He wants us to have life. His desire is not that the wicked would die. His desire is that everyone should be free, repent, and come to life. We may delight in the death of the wicked, God does not, or we'd all be dead. His delight is to see us change our hearts, to get converted, to stop walking this way, and to start walking this way. That's repentance, an entire change of life, a turning away from things toward the one who made everything. That's repentance and conversion. It's the classical sense of it turning from things to the Creator. And some of us, all of us, I think find it hard to believe that He really wants us and really delights in us when we do this. And there's no easier way to get convicted of that than Scripture. So that's what those last passages are. There's a telling scene as we close in uh, the Gospels. a telling difference, a striking difference between Judas and Peter. Because they both deny the Lord, huh? One sells him and then obviously acknowledges what he's done is wrong because he tries to give back the money. He gives back the money. But he hangs himself. He's moved somewhere in the direction of repentance. Repentance at least an acknowledgement of guilt. And then there's Peter, who in the presence of Jesus, the Gospel of Luke makes clear the third time that Jesus denies Peter, or that Peter denies Jesus, and the cock crows, Jesus turns and looks at him, is what Luke's text says. So somehow this is all happening in the presence of the Lord. These, I don't know him, This is the man who said, you're the eternal son of God. Now he's saying, I do not know the man. Don't know him, don't know him, don't know him. Finally calls a curse down on himself. May God damn me, is what he says, if I even know the man. If I even know the man. And yet somehow, Peter is moved to true conversion and repentance, and Judas ends up in disaster. And in my own life anyway, the, the, the way that I've understood the difference and experientially is I have to let myself get caught in Jesus' glance. When I know I am in sin, the temptation is just to run. Or if you're in destructive behavior, the temptation can be just to increase it. More and more and more and more. That's the devil's way of just getting you to run Whereas what the Lord wants to do is just say, stop, just stop, let me look at you. Just let me look at you. It's okay. Come back. You can come back. 
And so perhaps some of us tonight have been running. Well, get caught in his glance. Pray for it tonight. Ask Jesus throughout these first days of Lent, and perhaps maybe if you're going to the movie with us tomorrow, if you're going to go see it, pray, Lord, help me to see your glance. Let me get locked in your glance. Let me know it's okay to come home. Shatter all my fear and bring me home. I'm tired of running. God says through the prophet Isaiah, come now. Let's set things right. Though your sins be like scarlet, they may become white as snow. Though they be crimson red, they may become white as wool. As we begin tonight the season of Lent, the season of tremendous grace, let's hear his voice. Let's hear his invitation. Let's sit down with him. Let's set things right. Let's ask for his grace. Let's ask that he would show us the truth about our own sin. Give us an abhorrence of it. Increase our hearts with a greater understanding of how much he's done for us. Then let's live accordingly by being grateful to him. Asking him over and over again, how can I repay you, Lord? What should I do with my life? And start by sharing it with the person who lives in your house who works across the desk from you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Father, we ask tonight that you would continue to send your Holy Spirit deep into our hearts. Move in those places where we have not let you in or have not let you in for some time. Lord, put in us a hunger for freedom. Be free from our sins, so as to be free for loving you and each other the way we want. Lord, we ask that you'd give grace in a particular way to all of us who've been away from the great sacrament of confession. Help us soon to sit down and get things right with you. Give to all of us in these days greater and greater trust in you and in the remarkable love that you have for us, which we see in your Son, who has suffered for our sins and been risen from the dead. We ask all these things in his most holy name, Jesus our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. God bless you all. On this edition of Christ is the Answer, Father John Ricardo began a six-part mission series. It was recorded while he was the director of the Cardinal Maida Institute. We'll continue with part two of this mission on our next program. We conclude this program listening to a homily he preached on the first Sunday of Lent years ago. Father, in the beginning of these holy days, we do make our prayer the same prayer of David in the psalm, that you would give to us, your sons and daughters, new hearts, hearts that know you as our Father, hearts able to love each other as brothers and sisters. Help us now as we reflect upon your word, to take it into ourselves and to better understand it and to put it into practice. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So at the start of this Lenten season, the church kind of lays out for us in the scriptures today, especially in the first reading, the beginning of the drama of human history. Genesis chapter 3, as well as Genesis 2, that we're hearing from today is an attempt to explain how it is that everything that God made, which is so good which Genesis has stressed over and over and over again in the first couple of chapters, how it all went wrong. But, and I think this is important for us to keep in mind, what we just heard is not simply an explanation of what happened, it's an explanation of what always happens. In other words, it's not just how something went wrong then, it's how things go wrong now in my life and in yours when we tumble into sin. So let's try to do five things really quickly. First, look at the strategy of hell. Second, examine the first dangerous step into sin. Third, understand something of the wound that's in us because of Adam and Eve. Fourth, look at the remedy. And fifth, and really quickly, try to understand something like a Lenten prayer that we can all make. First, the strategy of hell. It's real simple. 
Satan's strategy is to accuse God. It's to put him, as C.S. Lewis used to put it in the English expression, in the dock. That is to say, on trial. It's to turn him from being a father into an adversary. Everything that's told us in the beginning of Scripture, all that's revealed to us about how God fashioned man and woman, made them with his own hands. It's a poetic way of saying that God just says, let there be light and there's light. But that's not what he did with the human being. He didn't just say, let man come into existence. He fashions man. It's an intimate gesture. It's him getting involved in our creation in a way that he didn't get involved in anybody else's. And then he places man, not merely in a garden, but in paradise. And he surrounds him with beauty. And he gives to him every gift that he has, including the tree of life. In other words, God's desire for us is to have life. If God had said, don't eat from the tree of life, that would have been a problem. But he didn't say that. Instead, he says, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which means what? It means simply this. It means don't pretend that you can take for yourself the ability to determine on your own, apart from me, what is good and what is evil. Because only God can tell you what is good and what is evil. And if you decide to take that for yourself, that means you've now put yourself in my place, God's place, which means I'm no longer God, which means you're cut off from me, and since I'm life, you're cut off from life, and you will die. But Satan twists all that. Real subtly. He doesn't even ask Eve a question. He just kind of throws out a statement as if he's fishing. It's like someone walking by saying, So, God said you can't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, huh? It's just a hook trying to see if she will bite. And she bites. Her mistake is she gets involved in the conversation. Don't ever get involved in a conversation with the evil one. He will always win. Our challenge is just to keep our ears plugged. And so God is accused by the serpent to the woman and to the man and says, He doesn't care for you. He doesn't love you. He's holding out on you. If he really loved you, he'd let you eat of that tree. And so Satan whispers in our ears similar things all the time, all throughout our life. If God really loved you, you wouldn't have gotten sick. Your daughter wouldn't have died. You wouldn't have lost your job. Your child wouldn't be going through the difficulty that she's going through. And all the situations that we face throughout our lives, which give him plenty of ammunition to whisper in our ears. What's the dangerous first step into sin? How is it that Adam and Eve, who know God, who walk with him in the cool of the day, who know him to be good, how is it that they all of a sudden turn from him to a tree? Here's how I think it happens. Satan doesn't compare them. He doesn't say, okay, let's look at God and all his beauty and his goodness and his love, and then let's look at this tree. Satan just kind of tries to stand in the place of God so that we can't see him anymore, so that all we can do is focus in on the gift. And because God's gifts are so good, because nothing that God makes is junk, the gifts easily eclipse the giver. And so it is for us. It's very easy for us to get fixated on the gifts in our life, particularly people. We're supposed to love people. I'm just not supposed to love people above God. There's nothing wrong with things, but I'm not supposed to love things more than God. There's nothing wrong with my health, but I'm not supposed to love my health more than God. And so St. Augustine used to say, we're all like brides who wake up on their wedding day and look at their wedding ring and they forget the man who gave the ring. That's what we often do. What's the wound as a result of all this? The wound is you and I, in the words of the psalm, have a bad heart, a sick heart, a bent heart. I need a new one. More significantly, we could say this, that you and I are born with a predisposition to not trust God. That's true in every single one of us. We're born with Adam and Eve's sickness. Or we're born sick as a result of Adam and Eve's choice. We call that concupiscence. The challenge of this is Jesus says to us that we must become like children. In fact, if we don't become like children, we'll never get into heaven. What does that mean? What do children have? 
Whenever I ask that question, people usually say they are innocent. But that just means you've never had a child. And I'm always struck by the fact that it's parents who always say they're innocent. Parents of all people should know children are not innocent. Especially by the time they get to two. Especially if you have siblings. Because they quickly blame each other. What children have is trust. Look at these kids being held in their parents' arms. They have reckless trust. They know their mother or their father will provide for them, care for them, watch over them, protect them, keep them safe, feed them, clothe them, shelter them. Children are born with trust. Things happen along the way, to be sure, which shake that. But children are born with trust. So must we have. Thus, the remedy is a new heart. And all throughout the Old Testament, God promises that he will give us a new heart. A heart which no longer thinks of God as an adversary, but instead understands God as a loving father. How does that happen? It happens by the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. When Jesus was on the cross, as we're going to hear at the end of Lent, and right before he dies, he hands over his spirit. To whom? He hands over his spirit to us, to the body, to the church. Why? So that I can live a new life. So that I would come to know that God is my Father who cares for me, who loves me, who has me in his hands, who always watches out for me, who doesn't protect me from any and all evil. That's not the promise. But in every situation that comes my way is with me. It's the Spirit who leads me to know that God is Abba, there, Father, Daddy, the one I can rely on. So what's the Lenten prayer? I think it's simply this. The challenge for Lent, I think, for all of us, for me, for you, for all of us, is to ask God to help us to go from data and information to knowledge. Knowledge in scripture doesn't mean data. Knowledge means relationship. The same Adam and Eve, it's said about them, Adam knew Eve and she bore Cain. Got a picture? That's knowledge. Knowledge is always intimate relationship in scripture. I would suggest that's the prayer that we should all make for each other and for ourselves in these days of Lent, that God would help us to come to know him and to plug our ears to all the lies and the assaults of hell, and then in the process to help those in our community to know him better as well. This has been Christ is the Answer program number 815. For a CD of this or any of our programs, go to AveMariaRadio.net and click on Store or order by leaving a voicemail at 734-930-4506. 734-930-4506 for program number 815. 2004 Mission Number 1. No Greater Love, Confession and Graces. Christ is the Answer was originally recorded and edited by Henry Root and is a production of AveMariaRadio.net. Tune in next time when Father John Ricardo addresses a topic of Christian concern from the Catholic perspective. This is Ave Maria Radio.